Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. Is that good? Yes, sir! I know who I am! Did IQs just drop shot? I could have been. I, I, I have planned. I like this All shit. It is an awesome You know Dance off, bro. It is your Me destiny. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. Let the games begin. Welcome to Atlantic Screen Connection with Jason and Lee. I'm Jason. I'm Lee. And today we're on episode 15, which means we're continuing our Paul Thomas Anderson retrospective. This week's movie is going to be There Will Be Blood. So how you doing, Lee? I'm doing fine, man. Uh, yeah, I'm grand, a little, little groggy, but uh, I'm just back. Uh, I just uh, bought my first car, actually. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, What'd you yeah. get? Uh, it's, it's, it's a Renault. It's not it's not flashy or anything. It's, it's my a first car. <laughs> That's awesome. We don't even have those cars in North America. What? what the... No, we don't. They came here, I think it was in the 80s, if I'm not mistaken, or even in the 70s. I have to check with my dad and apparently the cars that they'd sent over were so terrible because of the winter conditions <laughs> we get that all the cars were just breaking down i can believe that <laughs> yeah, it was the Renault. i think they called it the Renault seven right okay. like they had to pull out of the north american market because apparently oh, wow. everyone was real fucking Their name was hard wow i didn't know that yeah respect for Renault. Renault is is not exactly super high in this country either to be fair but they've never okay they've never backed down they're very much a a, a common first car kind of brand and uh like i've i've been driving for over a year or so now but i've been sharing a car with with maria and uh now you know i have to get to work she works on the other side of town and weddings coming up and so on and we have to be other places and so on it was like time to get the actual second car live that side of life so (laughs) got it sorted today happens very excited to drive very cool congrats man (laughs) thank you Uh, if ever i make it to ireland i'll be able to sit in a reno that's gonna be cool yeah it's really not (laughs) i don't care to me it's gonna be exotic man how are you man Uh, seasonal depression is sitting in one snowflake at a time here in quebec city Uh, i was twittering with uh, jd today sending him pictures i've seen the pictures sending his sorry envious ass pictures of my (laughs) fucking snow but I want to be down in Florida where he is, so I'm actually going to be talking to my girlfriend to see if we can swap places. Oh yeah, I'd give anything to be down in Florida right now and just like chilling on a, you know, I can't believe people complaining. I want snow. Fuck that. Snow and cold are not an issue for me. Right. The cost of living in a place like this that gets to be a little bit too intense for me, you know, like the heating bill goes up and then you have to put on the winter fucking tires and dress the kids who are growing and you got to buy a jacket every new winter. And yeah, yeah. So you're just constantly like throwing money in that burning roaring fire that you're trying to, <laughs> to keep, keep warm around <laughs> it's just fucking annoying but then the problem with the with the winter here in quebec is is the people the people as soon as it starts snowing people lose any common sense they have when they're driving their cars it's weird they that's all they, they step on the gas i mean the conditions are lowered and they think that they've become hyper aware so uh, like i said it goes with the personality here if winter gets cold it's it just mimics the people <laughs> cheery the kind of cheeriness that leads us right into our film discussion (laughs) exactly we're gonna be talking about the overly bleak there will be blood that's the operative word for there will be blood it is a bleak movie but for some reason it brings joy to my heart of course it does (laughs) you're a sick fuck (laughs) 
Speaking of sick fucks, I'm going to play the trailer and we're going to listen to Daniel Playview tell us how he cannot keep doing this with these people. We'll be back. Ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight. I couldn't get away sooner because my new well was coming in at Coyote Hills and I had to see about it. Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. I'm a family man. I run a family business. This is my son and my partner, H.W. Plainview. You boys are a regular family business. Now, you have a great chance here. My son is a healer and a vessel for the Holy Spirit. He has a church. Then you will be cast up and thrust back to the partition. I'm fixed like no other company in this field. I have a string of tools ready to put to work. That's why I can guarantee to start drilling and to put up the cash to back my word. I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what the others promise to do, when it comes to the showdown, they won't be there. There's a whole ocean of oil under our feet. No one can get at it except for me. We'll offer 150,000 for full title. When do we get our money, Daniel? <laughs> I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. Don't bully me, Daniel, please! I see the worst in people. We have a sinner with us. Get out of here, devil! I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I can't keep doing this on my own. with these um, people. Welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed the trailer for There Will Be Blood, a movie that stars Daniel Day-Lewis as Daniel Plainview, Paul Dano as Eli Sunday, H.W. as some actor's name. I have no idea who's there. <laughs> Kieran Hines from your neck of the woods. Yeah, yeah. The film is directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. The film deals with an upcoming prospector who meets an upcoming preacher or priest. And essentially what happens is that there's a clashing of ideologies and a bunch of people get mixed in the crossfire, caught in the crossfire, I should say. And uh, what should have won the Oscar for Best Movie in 2007, yeah. as I've said before. <laughs> so let's see. Let's get into it. Let's get into the nitty gritty of all this. Lee, what did you think of There Will Be Blood? I really enjoyed it. As I said before, I, I didn't know what I was getting into, basically. The two opinions I had that I mentioned on the previous episode were from my father and my uncle. My dad hated it. Right. Didn't like it at all. He's not into Kubrick-esque films. It's it's not his it's not his thing. Likes love cinema, just not Kubrick. Not a big Kubrick guy. Even though this isn't a Kubrick film, uh, and you're gonna go into it a little more, this there's definitely You've been saying it the whole way up. This is the Kubrick, the start of the Kubrick era for Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, there's, I, I seen it immediately. There's a lot in there that really screams back to that director. So on one side, he wasn't, a, he wasn't the biggest fan of the movie, but he said that my uncle was a huge fan and said it was his, you know, one of his favorite films he had ever seen. So I was kind of. 
Well, I like Kubrick. Maybe I'll like it, but then you really don't like it. So, maybe it makes sense. Maybe it's just not that great. My overall impression, I really enjoyed it. I wouldn't... I wouldn't be in a rush to see it again. I I don't think I um I think it's it's a really really good film, but I'm not I'm not so sure on great. I think it's it has a lot of great things in it, but as a as a narrative, I don't know. I think it kind of there's just bits and pieces that are, are are missing to me that really grab me uh and engage me on 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 some of the levels it's trying to reach for. But that's you know I still would recommend this immediately and uh, we'll get that right off the bat but uh yeah that's that's my general impression yeah, cool and i you know what seeing as that we're going to be talking about about uh the, the, these opposing forces these clashing guys sure i think that it's kind of interesting that your father had a negative reaction to it and my father had a very positive reaction yeah to right it. but then my girlfriend had a very negative reaction to it really she's right. tried to watch this movie more than once and she's never been able to stick to it because she's sitting there going like why am i supposed to be watching this i don't like the character i don't care what he has to yeah. do he looks like an evil fuck i am not attracted to this type of person and so i was like that makes perfect sense i completely get that and then when she looked at me and she says i understand why you like it <laughs> she says because you're a twisted evil fuck yeah, and I was like, well, all right fair enough and so i remember when the movie came out i went to see it i don't know if it was the opening day but i know it was the opening week and i sure. saw it twice and i really wanted to see it again the third time i had a new baby girl so twice was already too much fair enough <laughs> And so I remember when it came out on uh, DVD, I had bought it. I had told my father, you have to go see it. But my father was still living in a, in a really shitty town at the time. And they never got it, that movie over there. Right. And so he never got to see it. And so when I got it on DVD, I basically lent it to my father. Actually, no, he was actually coming to visit me. I was in Quebec City at the time. And we sat down. My mom had gone to bed and I was like, hey, do you want to watch this? And he was like, oh, yeah. He says, put it on. And my dad's the kind of guy that always uh, brought me to watch the movies. I talked about Terminator 2. But my father is very much a classics guy. He's right. the guy that told me about The Godfather. But a friend of mine got me to watch those when I was uh, a little bit you know, in high school. Sure. My father talked to me about like movies like Midnight Express, 2001, Clockwork Orange. My dad was the guy who turned me on to these very strange um, not necessarily accessible films, but yeah. he understood what cinema was for some reason. Yeah. And he doesn't have any background in film, film at all. Film lovers films. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, Apocalypse Now, he loves Apocalypse Now. Wow. You know, he's like, this is great. This is a good movie. You know, and he says he likes Marlon Brando in it, even if he's there for just a short time. He loves Martin Sheen. And so, uh, when I sat him down to watch There Will Be Blood, he immediately recognized Daniel Day-Lewis, and he was like, oh, he's that guy in, uh, in the name of the father. And I was like, yeah, that's him, you know. So, we went off, and he said, oh, I didn't we see him with uh, DiCaprio in that movie not too long ago I was like that's him and he says he's really good I like him and so he got in off just liking yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis right, right. he didn't care what kind of character he was playing he was like this guy's an actor and I love it and one of the things that my dad brought up to me and it, it it made sense, you know, and it still makes sense. And he says, do you remember how Robert De Niro was when he was in Taxi Driver and Raging Bull? And I was like, all right, Dad, keep pummeling these these titles that I had no idea you'd seen before. <laughs> he says, you know how De Niro gets into a, into a role? He says, Daniel D. Lewis is exactly like that. He says, you you don't see the, uh, the, the actor anymore. You right. see the character he's playing. And my father appreciates that. He says, if I'm going to pay money, he better be doing a goddamn good job <laughs> <laughs> and so when i sat him down to watch it uh, he really liked it. he was like and he he was eager to watch it again because uh, he said 
I can't say that it's a happy movie. Sure. But he says it really spoke to me. So much so that when Blockbuster was closing, he knew that I only had the DVD. When he saw it, it was still in the racks and he knew that I had just upgraded to a, a, a bigger television and bought myself a Blu-ray player. And he bought the Blu-ray for me and said, listen, he says, I know that you're one of those quality freaks. So give me your DVD and I'll exchange it for the Blu-ray instead. And I was like, oh, that'd be great. Thanks, dad. And so, yeah. And I, I think I, I asked him last week if he had watched it since. And he says, oh yeah. He says, I've probably watched that movie three or four times. Wow. And I was like, Jesus, that's really cool. That's, that's so, commitment, man. So that's it. No, my my, I, I really love this film. Um, I won't say it's my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film. Sure. But it is my second favorite mm. Paul Thomas Anderson film. We haven't talked about my favorite. And my favorite is actually The Master. And I know a lot of people are going like, what the fuck? <laughs> really? Are people not cool with The Master? I thought people you know, were on board with The Master. They call it one of Paul Thomas Anderson's lesser works. Wow. And I think... I think they're wrong. But yeah, There Will Be Blood is definitely my second favorite Paul Thomas Anderson mm. film. Uh, but I only found out the first time I saw The Master. <laughs> because it was, <laughs> it was number one. <laughs> yeah, it was number one for a long time. Right. Well, those are the overall impressions right now. But I really want to get into what, what makes the, There Will Be Blood such... To me, it's a classic. This is a movie that's going to age well with time. People are going to revisit this I, film. I can agree with that. And they're always going to get something new from it. I can see a lot of ink being spilt by scholarly articles and whatnot. So I wanted to get your take yeah. on it. Yeah. You're totally right. It, it One of the greatest benefits of the film, uh, right off the bat, is how it lends itself so well to interpretation. A lot of the imagery uh, and the performances uh, are, are, are left kind of unspoken, you know, especially and, and the, the craft of the film, as you were saying as well. Like the swells in the music and the darkness, the framing of the, of not only the shots, but the scenes themselves. There's, there's so much there that, you know, basically... Two people can watch the film and get something entirely different out of it. I'll, I'll I'll go I'll get into what I maybe got out of it. What I really what I took away from the film, what I really enjoyed about the film was I, I read it as this story that was a contest between pragmatism and idealism. Okay. Obviously, we have the setup between Daniel Plainview and Eli Sunday, and these two to me they represent bigger ideas. They embody themes that are a little stronger than what their characters simply do and say. So, right. in one hand, we've got Daniel Plainview. So. Uh, to me, Daniel, he represents pragmatism. I mean, it's right there in the name, Plainview. He's right. oh, good, yeah. He's the hands-on guy. He sees the physical. He sees the utility. That's his. That's his way of perceiving the world. So, and we can see that through his main objectives in in the film is is kind of the course of his story. Number one, obviously, he's a prospector. He drills for oil. That's somebody who you know benefits from a very material. His job is to basically use something that is very physically usable. And we got to look into what he's actually looking to do with that resource. Well, he gets rich. That's what he wants to do. He wants to get rich. That's a physical gain. Uh, it's not so symbolic of anything. It's 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 a it's a straight up you know material possession. What does he want to get rich for? Well, he wants to get rich to get away from people. At least he tells us. Although to me, I would say uh, it's a bit negligible whether he really wants to get away from people because to me he values bragging too much about material okay. gain. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, as You're we talking about that that uh, the restaurant scene with Tilford. It, Exactly, exactly that. Okay, okay, cool. Because, yeah, we've got that scene where he, he and H.W. are sat down in this restaurant, and right. he sees these uh, people who have initially offered him a million dollars to to set up the oil line uh, that he rejected because he had bigger he had bigger scale plans to get more money and to basically rub it in these guys' faces. And so, with a little, after the influence of a little liquor, he just goes out at them and tries to make a fool of them for making the wrong call. Doesn't succeed in the scene. 
but he clearly gets a lot out of it. So what's the difference? He has no direction. While he has all these material possessions, what he lacks in the way of idealism is that he doesn't have a, a, a final goal, a destination to bring his material gains. He hasn't got a, a limit on himself. He just wants to absorb and control more. He does, as, as I said, he does think he has the idea of getting away from people, but if he were to actually get away from people, he would lose his bragging rights. Who would he tell? Right. And so there's nothing to gain in that sense. He's all drive no purpose. Yeah, he excels in opposition. If there's no opposition, you know, there's he's got nothing left. You're right. Absolutely right. Exactly. And we, and we get plenty of other, uh, you know, examples, you know, for example, his son, HW. He's not, he's not exactly a, you know, it's not, the relationship isn't founded on an actual emotional connection or anything that's a little abstract and harder to define. It's, it's defined by the idea that he actually sees his son as a tool, a marketing device. He he uses him to, to sell the oil as a family business. At the same time, if you want to go a little further, a little iffier, you could even see the sun as an extension of legacy. I mean, that's, you know, the very pragmatic oh, yeah. sense of what children do. They... You know, the, oh, yeah. you further a bloodline. It's a, and you can see him as also as a mark of ownership. Something again that plays into Daniel's way. He just absorbs. He loves collecting. He loves owning land, oil, and people. There's the, those sort of towers that he builds for himself. And we see uh, the difference when H.W. loses his hearing. H.W. functions, in my view, as a as a receptacle for Daniel's ego. Right. He is someone who can absorb his bragging when no one else can hear him. You know, that's another reason why you keep him around. But the moment he goes deaf, he uses a lot of his utility. While that doesn't even affect him being a son that could be still used as a, a marketing tool, the deafness means that he, he loses a, the strongest function he offers Daniel. Right. And so his immediate course of action is to dismiss him. He, he abandons him. There's no actual emotional investment with his son. At least, well, I, I guess you could debate maybe a little later. There's 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 tail fragments of something. But I think on, an, on the majority of the level, if he's willing to part with his son that readily, there's no true emotional investment. So for Daniel, we see pragmatism reach its limits. If followed dogmatically, the ideal of pragmatism, it becomes obsession. And obsession turns inevitably to madness if the goal is ever winding always stretching forward right. but unobtainable you know he doesn't have anything all if all the if his goal is to absorb and contain more and more he's never going to be happy that's kind of cool because that that image of those train tracks that seem to be going on forever exactly is what you're pointing to right there which is great yeah so that's Daniel. On the other side of things, we have Eli Sunday. Initially, you could you could say that he represents spiritualism because yeah, he's, right. a, he's yep. a man of God, but he believes more in his own power than he actually believes in God himself. He believes in his his ability yeah. as a spiritual conduit for God, and so realistically, he's not so much spiritualism as he is idealism. He represents something that is bigger than just one factor of you know he's he's more than just religion. He is all-consuming in the in a in a more abstract way and we can see yeah. that again it's reflected in the name his name isn't just you know is if it, if it was focused on christianity his name could have been eli church eli cross eli i don't know christ you know it could have been a little on the nose if he really wanted to go that way but his name's right. eli sunday and there's more to sunday the day than just christianity it's a roman day it's a pagan day. It's a Norse day, you know? It's got all these ties to all these different creeds and religions. And it's more representative of an all-inclusive idealism than it is a spiritual one. And we see that in his character because he has unfiltered ambition. He is 
in that sense, the opposite of Daniel. Rather than having this sort of straightforward view and this this material possession, he actually has an end goal. He is aiming to get admission to heaven. He wants to buy his one-way ticket to heaven. Right. And he'll do whatever he feels is necessary to get there. For him, there's clearly a, a line, there's somewhere to be. And he connects with Daniel to a point. There's this curve where they, both these parallels connect. Because to do that, he needs people. He needs material gain. These two should collide at some yeah. point. Yep. But the issue is they can't. They're, they're polar opposites. And they reject each other. By instinct. They wish to use each other, but they, they just can't, you know, as, as two polar extremes, as two definition interpretations of these of these concepts, they can't connect. Oh, and they're they're after the same money, right? It becomes a tug of war match. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? So, I mean, obviously they're op- they're acting opposite each other. Yeah, exactly. But the thing that, that pushes them apart is essentially the fact that they're both after the same money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It gets them, it gets them to their goal. Uh, if, if Daniel had the... If he had the clarity of seeing a goal by using Eli, or if Eli had the material to obtain his goal, if they had each other, if they connected together on some level, that would, you know, the story would resolve itself. But it doesn't, because these are extremes. So the two lack each other's gift, and if we follow idealism to its end, where it, without pragmatism, it's broke. It's useless. It's meaningless. In the end, we see Eli desperate, groveling for help. He comes to Daniel, and he begs him to help him. On the other side of that, Daniel if we follow pragmatism to his end it's cold it's mad it's alone utility isn't enough you know he's got he's got a mansion of some description he's got his money he's probably got his oil business till the end of time and he drinks and he sleeps on the floor (laughs) you know he's lost his son he's lost his family everything's kind of disappeared and here we see the final conflict between pragmatism at the end of the film pragmatism and idealism because once idealism at its most desperate at its full conclusion meets pragmatism at its mad bitter isolated and conclusive end pragmatism still has physical power pragmatism is still going to dominate idealism you can't you can't create without something physical you know you can't right. can't wish into nothing and we see that interpretation when daniel oh so coolly beats eli to death <laughs> in a yeah, bowling alley with a bowling pin <laughs> yeah so i mean as far as i can see from what we can learn from the dichotomy is we're seeing this clear polar opposite parallel so that we as the viewers can explore the middle ground if we kind of look at the idea of these old greek tragedies that would use these uh god figures who would represent big traits the people that actually hear these stories aren't supposed to be aspiring to be one or the other. They're supposed to be seeing what these two concepts do to each other in their little battles and how we can learn through that. And here it's 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 just that same application. Here um, Anderson's using or simple stories that reach through grander theatrics to bigger messages. They're generally simple truths, but the scale in which they're told help us see the small significance between the characters and their parallels. And so, I mean, that's 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 like the one thing that's that's my initial reading of the of the film and it's a little bloated and over long but there <laughs> i disagree i think you put your finger right on it i mean this is cool because you actually uh, i was looking for terms i was looking for terms and i i didn't i hadn't come up with any terms <laughs> and now i have your terms and it fits into with what i had to say and it oh, was good. great <laughs> <laughs> perfect 
So yeah, man, I I think you're spot on with your with your uh, idealism versus pragmatism approach. And I mean, it, it makes sense when you look at the larger picture of the movie that this would be those two things. Because to me, the movie itself is about transitions. Okay, if, right. if someone asked me to describe there will be blood in one word, I would call it a, a transition. Okay, so let's just keep that in mind. I'll bank my transitions thing right now cool and what i did notice when i did pick up on on on, uh this viewing was that the the movie is filled with something that's quite common in literature and it's basically what you were pointing out earlier and it's these this idea of binary opposites right right and now you've just given me the terms which is great i can work (laughs) i can work with idealism versus pragmatism because i was like well it's not good versus evil which would be the most basic binary opposite Mm. and then uh then people were talking about religion versus capitalism and i was like that one's too fucking simple as well i was kind of disappointed i was like really this is that what you guys (laughs) picked up fuck it's really i thought it was just reducing it to the most common denominator where i was like that's definitely in the surface narrative. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the context of the setting. Exactly. And that's it. You know, he's talking about larger themes, you know. And so I, I had come up on my side with intellectual versus professional and spiritual versus practical, which I was like, yeah, but I, I, didn't, I didn't have the two words and now you just give it to me. <laughs> and I'm happy as a pig of shit right now. So what I'd want to do is essentially talk about what you're talking about, but I would add just a little bit and I would say that it was more the transition from idealism to practice right, we're right. talking about an evolution throughout the movie sure. uh, but i think that's only one aspect of the movie because the movie is filled with a bunch of uh, transitory moments and so just look at like the character arcs that there are in the movie right you have daniel that goes from being this lone prospector to a dad that has you know a oil company and men working for him to a guy that goes back to being an isolated figure. And then you'll Mm -hmm. have Eli who goes from being this shit brat kid who thinks he knows better than most to actually becoming a minister back to being a beggar, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of picked up on it this time where I was like, oh, we're back to Boogie Nights where it's a rise and fall story. Yeah, exactly. two different perspectives, depending on what you bring to the film, right? Are you more on Daniel's side or are you more on Eli's side? Are you a guy that's more of a... Uh, I'll say like spiritual or intellectual, someone who 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 can kind of revels in in abstract, or you're more like Daniel, who's more in the professional, practical, and concrete type of uh, yes. uh, person, right? And so Definitely. it's kind of fun because anybody who walks into that movie theater is not equal parts one or the other, but they do have that little dichotomy within themselves where they're going to be thinking at one point that Eli's making some valid points or that Daniel's making some valid points. So that's kind of fun that Anderson enables you to wrestle with those things inside yourself the entire time. Yeah, sure. And what I wanted to kind of point that to is like he how he uses that, that imagery or the visual language throughout the film because Anderson divides the screen in very specific ways, whether it's with the land or how the characters are blocked, you know, where they enter the screen or how they're shown to the audience and he creates clear divisions to show these binary opposites right and where that brought me because I, I always like pointing out shit that most people don't talk about <laughs> where, where that brought me is it, uh, with everything that i've read on there will be blood i've realized that no one ever talked about the opening shot really exactly i was like okay people are it's talking. such a, it's such a notable moment <laughs> yeah but i don't know what it is most people like from what i've read anyway i've read i probably read about good 
you know, 12 or 13 articles on there right. will be blood just because I, I, it's, it's the kind of stuff I eat for breakfast. I just wake up and I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to read something about Hitchcock. Today. I wish, I wish I had that inherent desire to learn more. <laughs> uh, I'm always picking up shit to read. But, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, the opening shot was one of the things that I cheat on where I was like, no one's talking about this. All right. Now it's my turn. <laughs> I get to talk about the opening shot. Yeah, great. And I think that, the opening shot is really Anderson showing the audience how he's structured his narrative, which right. is weird. I know most people are going to be like, okay, where the fuck is this going? But just let, just bear with me. Sure. The opening shot is three mountains on a barren land, right? You get mm-hmm. barely a shrub. You got a little tree here or something. And it's shot at a slight, I think it looks like a 30 degree angle or a 40 yeah, degree yeah. angle. And you'll have each mountain seemingly touching. The left one is in the front. The middle is... Uh, the middle one is like slightly in the back there, and then, then the right one is still like farther away. Yeah. Then you'll have the sky above, and the barren barren land is below, and then you'll have Johnny Greenwood's weird ominous score just kind of coming to <laughs> yeah. a crescendo, bringing it to your attention at the at the very least. <laughs> okay. So let's keep that in mind. Well, we've got transitions in the bank, and we've got the opening shot in the bank. Okay, let's fast forward just a little bit. Once we're past the opening shot, the audience is shown like Daniel hacking away at a rock down in a hole in the earth, inside the earth. Okay, mm. so this gives us where Daniel's faith lies. Right. You know, he's from Earth. He's from the land. Okay. Yes. Yes. I exactly. Go so far as to hell because I remember reading a bunch of things where people were talking about he's he's a hellion he's someone who comes from hell and that's why that Derek bursts into flames at one point it's like the the, the gloriousness of his hell has arisen to earth and I was like mm. well you guys can see it that way I saw a nice I, I guess I get what they're going for I mean there is a good parallel there with the church thing but uh I don't know I get it's not it. what I read no well you know it, it's kind of that but I, to me it's yeah. more like I want to t- stick to your pragmatism and like practical and professional aspect where he's he's working on something tangible right so he's from the earth he's from the land he toils sure and so if we fast forward just a little bit and we look at eli okay who is daniel's binary opposite we were talking about he represents idealism eli being a minister or a prophet means that he is kind of a representation of heaven right something that's intangible therefore he's from the sky which is in direct opposition to the earth even if you look down to scripture you know if you go all the way back to sumerian tales when you have those things it's essentially all stories of creation go from heaven earth you know or sky to the earth you have all these things that right, going yes. to say, and then the child that comes in between is what separates the parents now so what we have now with daniel and eli is we have daniel whose faith comes from the earth and eli's whose comes from the sky okay sure. if we look at the representation and therefore when these two people collide they literally meet in the middle on the surface so what that means for me anyway okay is that there is a mountain on the left and a mountain on the right, but we still haven't talked about what's in the middle. The middle is what I call the catalyst, I'll say, right? Okay, so if we have these binary opposites, they're they're rotating around this one thing. We'll call it a catalyst or an intermediary. These catalysts are what are going to cause these binaries to start acting opposite one another. And the catalysts, in my opinion, uh, that separate our two main characters are H.W., who's on Daniel's side, and then you'll have Paul on Eli's side. Right. Now, what I mean by catalyst, okay, or intermediary, is that Eli's brother Paul is what brings Daniel to little Boston. Mm -hmm. But H.W. is what gets little Boston to work with Daniel. So those are our catalysts. And the audience sees these characters as the two people that are responsible for the union between Daniel and Eli. When Paul leaves the picture, he then becomes a projection of what H.W. 
will be later someone who wants to go out on his own and start his own business. Mm. Now, we're left with H.W. as the sole catalyst in the middle of everything, but he's barely around when Daniel's working. Once Daniel's used him, he sends him off to play. And as a result, this is where our clashing of ideologies starts, and H.W. ends up caught in the crossfire. So if we transpose everything I've just said onto the opening shot of the film, we have Daniel, who's represented by the right mountain, the emerging ideology, and then Eli by the prominent left mountain the dominant ideology of the time which is essentially religion and we have hw as the center mountain we also have eli who represents the sky something abstract okay something we can't touch and then we also have daniel who represents the earth something tangible and something concrete as we were talking about just a little bit earlier so the mountains can be seen as a transition either backwards or forwards right right okay and what does anderson say with that opening shot and in my opinion what he's saying is that this is nature these are the inherent qualities the essences of who we are as people this is what we embody you know whether it's our similarities or our differences you all see things differently but this is how i choose to express it that's essentially what i think that anderson is getting at so the opening shot to me is just like a painting you can project whatever the hell you want onto it and anderson is saying that his film is designed to be that way as well there's no right or wrong so it goes again to what you were talking about at the beginning where this is very much open to interpretation and in presenting that opening shot the way it is you can get as much information as you want or you can just look at it as a barren wasteland that's yeah that's that's perfect I, yeah i love the idea that all the elements are there inherently you know a film being a, a sort of contained story with a, a exactly. series of elements put into it in itself it's great to see that that connects and uh, you know we see everything in the one image that's that's a great idea the mountains themselves you know when when you look at little boston a little bit farther in the movie there are three oil derricks that are there yeah just standing up you can also look at the mountains you know usually when you look at old ziggurats from like uh, sumeria and things like that they all look like little pyramids and essentially that's what churches were built for too right these things that reach up to the sky so I yeah mean, this is people that are kind of looking back onto what the natural land was telling them what they should do if you want to get closer to god or if you want to be closer to the earth it really depends on where you look if you look down or if you look up yeah yeah exactly and i like the idea that that kind of ties into the idea that um both pragmatism and idealism do want to connect with each other you know <laughs> through uh through daniel and eli that they you know that there is this reach the the mountains reach out to the sky the sky encompasses yep. the ground but they don't connect no they there's don't. never a point they fully touch and that no. you know that's perfectly representative of their arcs and uh, and the, the trajectory those characters go down. So I think that's that's kind of brilliant. Yeah, so that that's what I picked up on the opening shot. And I mean, I still wanted to build on what you were talking about in terms of polar opposites because that sure. really sparked something in me right now as well. And I mean, to me, if we're looking at how the mountains are portrayed in the opening shot, they kind of all look the same, but we know that they're right. not the same. And so even if Daniel and Eli are opposites, it doesn't mean that they're different, right? In fact, I'd say that their journeys are somewhat parallel throughout the movie and I think that yeah. Anderson uses a lot of parallel imagery throughout the film I mean look what we were talking about just a minute earlier we have those those mountains that are seemingly all, all the same in height and, and I mean look at look at what a church looks like and look at how the derrick looks like in the movie right you have an oil yeah. derrick that looks exactly like a church you know and they're going to be on opposite yeah, exactly. sides of the, the town exactly exactly the church of pragmatism versus the church of idealism there I you love go, it right? <laughs> and then it's kind of funny because you got the shot of Daniel at one point when he's sitting down at his uh, his uh, 
we'll call it his base camp. You know, at one point he's mm-hmm. kind of looking over at Eli to see how much progress idealism is making. And then he yeah, goes back yeah. to see if his shit's working too. So it's kind of interesting to see these two guys because I, I see them both as ministers in their own way. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. They both come of age in the same fashion. You know, they both have nothing at first and they have to pave their way. Daniel says he's an oil man at the beginning of the movie, but he hasn't struck his big payload yet. Sure. Eli, yeah. Eli claims to be a prophet, but he doesn't even have his big church yet. You know, they're fighting for the same people we were talking about, the same money, you know. And to me, like when you see Daniel at the beginning of the movie, when he starts when he starts off with his ladies and, and gentlemen, you know, he's on a stage the same way as Eli when he's preaching to his choir. Yeah, right? yeah. I see they're that. both yeah, huh? actors acting on different stages, preaching to the same people and trying to get them to join. I don't know. They're their cult for lack of a better term yeah i think if you see it as each arc kind of resembling a mirror of itself you know oh definitely so yeah. there's 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 this this line in between and the arcs they actually resemble an arc you say a rise and a fall so you know it's a it's a peak up and then a, a fall back down mm-hmm. so these kind of so if you think of these peaks and they reach into the middle they almost connect between the line and then reverse onto themselves we see that sort of mirror imagery in the fact that even when I mean, by the story's point, we're looking at Daniel a lot of the time. Right. You know, pretty much at his highest point where most of the deals are going right, he uh, he is pretty vulnerable to the idealism. But the two... Oh, yeah, yeah. The two, uh, the two characters, as they start actually impacting each other, where Eli has land that Daniel wants and has one up on Daniel, basically, to use him, Eli still requires from Daniel that faith, that devotion to... to to channel his own furthering. So oh, they yeah, do, yeah. there's this cross section almost, not fully, because they both maintain their, you know, their direction as such, their, their inevitable ends. They never win. They never beat each other actually down. At the end, basically, Daniel abstains from fully admitting he might confess that he loves his son. And, you know, it's debatable whether he does do that for his son or for the land. And he even maybe gets emotional thinking about how that land is so dear to him and it's the yeah. last piece, you know. It's not, he does take the sun back, but that's, you know, you could see that more as to complete the deal, the transaction between him and Eli. Right. And afterwards, Eli disappears and Daniel, he's on this sort of trajectory where he's he's actually doing probably the best he's ever done. And while that represents the fall, we don't also see the the reverse. We don't see Eli's inevitable fall into despair and, and poverty. Right. Until we get to the to the end where they're not connecting. They're in the same room, but there's no one trying they're not trying to get something from each other anymore. Right. They're simply trying to detach from one another. And it eventually happens Daniel kills Eli he needed Eli and he murders him and yeah that's the a, arc that is the sad part yeah yeah they just they go the opposite directions and that's where it stops the the rise and fall complete for both characters Eli's in death oh the, he's not going to heaven <laughs> he didn't get the, the funds he needed <laughs> yeah that's that's true he did not and it, like he says he he even confesses at the end of the movie I am so full of sin yeah you know exactly exactly he dies a sinner he fails in his goal and he renounces God before he dies he's a false prophet <laughs> yeah I love that scene <laughs> oh it's it's wonderful it's yeah. just a joy to behold <laughs> yeah and it's it's 
even even the the the, the abandoned my child scene with Daniel, right? I mean, these two mm. people. I mean, you're, you're you're putting it very well. Like to me, it's kind of funny because, like I said, it's, it's a clashing, right? But these two forces sure. are very very strong. They're pushing one against the other, and like I said, HW is caught in the middle. Once he's right, yeah. once he's thrown out, you know, these people are going at it. But it's kind of weird because Daniel and Eli don't act on one another at first. They threaten each yeah, other, right? Sure. Eli refuses to get his hands dirty and work and stuff like that. And I think that's one of the reasons why Daniel hates him so much. It's like you, mm-hmm. you'd rather swindle people out of money than actually work for it, you little shit, you know? And so like yeah. Daniel dragging him into the mud, literally dirtying him. Get your fucking hands dirty, you little fuck. You know, aren't you a healer? Why can't you... You know, can't you fix anything? Can't you use your hands and fix my child the same way you were using your hands to fix that old woman's hands, the arthritis? Exactly. But I mean, I, I, you're right that their actions do parallel each other when they when they kind of go in, on that rise that you're talking about where they don't necessarily touch each other because it, sure. it's all in threats until the end mm-hmm. when Daniel literally kills him. You know? And so, uh, yeah, and that, and that that final touch as such is them totally separate, you know? That's yeah. the you know the final parting blow. It's not a connection. It's a, it's a dismissal. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think, yeah, that makes 100% sense. You know? and, but, I mean, there's a big build-up to that, which I enjoy. Yeah. Because, oh, yeah, you know, Daniel, you know, he threatens Eli, you know, explicitly saying that he'll bury him underground, which is essentially where Daniel has made his money. Yeah, exactly. Right? So he's just... That is his terrain, you Exactly. Know? I'll bury you where I come from, you know? Mm. And but Eli implicitly threatens Daniel by saying, "You should have let me bless the well." So he says, "You should have kind of let me pull down from the sky something for from you." Exactly, exactly, perfect. And it's kind of weird because in that way, Eli is actually claiming responsibility for that guy's death. Yeah, but uh, I mean that's that's the thing. That's that's his attempted ownership yeah. by claiming Daniel. He succeeds. He wins. He's added him to his obsession of getting into heaven. He has purged the earth of evil in his eyes and therefore has ultimately won his ticket to heaven that's his destiny you know that's what he can gain from daniel Mm -hmm. whereas daniel from him can gain you know redemption and direction and an idea you know somewhere to go once it's all done right you know so there's this need from each other that they just don't fully connect and get from each other but there is this constant back and forth as they try to get one over on each other for their own terms and yeah it's always for their own terms it's it's daniel using you know pettily dismissing his right to bless the well you know you know it's my possession it's my ownership you can't have this i'll give it to anyone i'll give it to your sister Exactly. It's funny, Uh, but you're you're absolutely right because they call each other's bluffs all the time, right? Well, actually, at two two specific moments, in my opinion, you know, you'll have you'll have um, Daniel. What was it? Uh, What was the sequence? Oh, when the guy dies, that that second death at the well, uh, where he 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 goes up to see Eli just before he cures the woman of arthritis. Well, cures quote unquote the woman of arthritis, (laughs) you know. And and Daniel calls his bluff. He literally tells him right in the face, you know, that was one hell of a show. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. It's on a stage. But Eli goes and he evens that out at one point as well, you know, by having him shout out that he's abandoned his child. He's called out his bluff and saying, you're not a family man. You sent him away. If you were a family exactly. man, you would have tried to help your son, but you didn't, you fuck. You know, and so I, I, I thought it was weird how, how these guys would threaten each other. They never do it. And 
all the rage that they have, they take it out on other people, right? Look at what happens after Eli crawls out of the mud. He goes home and beats the shit out of his dad for being weak. That's right. right that's right. And look exactly. at what Daniel does. Daniel's angry at Eli and he's angry that he put HW away. What does he do? He fucking shoots Henry and he buries him underground. <laughs> he buries him underground exactly what he promised to do Eli. Yeah, yeah. Right? You're so right, they're, you're right. they're acting is... against family as opposed to against each other. Everyone's caught in the crossfire of all their shit. Uh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> they're on it when they they can't succeed in besting each other fully they have to find you know consolation in besting others in almost a similar you know a similar way where we see daniel taking henry aside you know the, his family and severing a you know a, a, an idealistic tie you know right even as tangible as it is uh you know it's, it's he definitely cuts that and at the same time eli demonstrating physical strength over his father but to what end the man's weak he's old you know he's already surpassed him you know he's already done better than him he from the first moment they introduced both characters he's smarter sharper wiser already trying to get above daniel he's already dismissed his father's you know level right absolutely so there's there's no competition there they don't gain anything from their respective backgrounds and their attempt to console themselves doesn't help them in their struggle against one another they simply defeat themselves further absolutely and it's it's kind of funny to defeat themselves further i think it goes into also how what we were talking about like they're both trying to get at the same money yeah you know it, right, it's yeah. kind of cool because it goes back to what you know that famous quote now you know i drink your milkshake you know when uh-huh, he goes uh-huh. drainage i mean <laughs> eli is essentially trying to do the same thing from the townspeople by trying to get their money that daniel said he was going to bolt gold all over the place right and he's, exactly. he's trying to get that gold and so i mean I, I don't think that daniel learned it from eli but eli tried it first by trying to get everyone to convert to his church and knowing full well that the oil was going to be there, he's just trying to siphon the money. He's trying to drain them. But essentially what happens is that he doesn't get that money at all. And Daniel drains him in the end. He's the one who goes to the bandy tract and says, I drink your fucking milkshake. <laughs> Fuck you. you tried to drink mine and you didn't get it. You know? So I thought it was kind of yeah. cool. It was a clever way to show that parallel that they're both trying to get it. You know, again, what it goes again with that up and down parallel that we were talking about, right? Above, yes, you know, Eli is trying to get the money directly from the people that are on the earth, but he's trying to get it through salvation, pulling it down from the sky. And then, but you have Daniel who's underneath it all. And he's, yep. tra- he's, Pulling it right out Which, from underneath. You know, them. makes makes money his terrain because it's a physical, you know, it's a physical item you can gain, you can own. Mm-hmm. That's something it has its conceptual draw. It represents more value than it physically is. That's why that's something you could say is a draw for Eli. That's why he's interested. Right. Because money is more than it each coin that you have represents a certain value. And value is, you know, it's not actually physical, you know, it's 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 conceptual. Oh yeah. So Eli's drawn to that, but the physical manifestation of that is is gold and oil, you know, and that's where Daniel gets the upper hand on that ground. He owns the physical, you know. He can if it's if it's controllable, if he can pragmatically take it. Right. It's his. And so that's, you know, that's where he gets that upper hand on that ground. But what does it buy him? Nothing. He doesn't. No, you're right. Yeah, it's cool. 
that you pointed that out because that's exactly what it is. There is a value. There's a tangible value to pragmatism. And Daniel's showing people that that's it, you know? Mm -hmm. And it goes back to what I was talking about in terms of transitions, right? You know, people are going from that idealistic point of view that they have to a more pragmatic point of view. They need to see something now. They need to add value to what they have, right? And they can't go around false promises because as we saw the first time we visit the Sunday Ranch, they don't even have fucking bread, you know? There's no (laughs) education in the town. And and faith can't buy education. Faith can't buy bread, you know? Oil can. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And so it becomes this this transition where people are like, well, we're going to have to start believing in something tangible because other than that, we're going to fucking starve to death. I think, uh, yeah, I think there's this idea that both there is this transition for those characters but there's also this specifically there's also this inverse lack of transition that both characters could use you know so transition is still the main theme that ties them together the idea is they should transition more into each other's you know concept they can't though you know and that main want for the narrative is that you wish that they could you know they wish they could they could move the mountains essentially (laughs) that's a good way to put it yeah I think that's great and you know even like I said even if they're opposites you know they're not necessarily different and I think that's where they both and it brings back to what you were talking about you know pragmatism might be something that people uh, want because it's something that's tangible but is it really that good because look at daniel daniel ends up being a fucking asshole in the end no he can buy himself liquor (laughs) really serves him well (laughs) he's shooting his entire house to pieces He throws, I always forget about that detail. <laughs> he throws his bowling pins at the wall. He doesn't care. He's just exactly, trying to kill exactly. someone. Even human life has no value for Daniel by the end of the movie. Exactly, He's exactly. throws his family away and he kills his main opponent. He doesn't care for human value anymore. Nothing, right? Nothing. So full-on yep. pragmatism is something of a failure and full-on idealism is something of a failure as well, right? Especially if you're doing it for selfish purposes, as the way Daniel and Eli were doing yeah, it. Yeah, well, exactly. That's that's that. That's the idea. If they embody those concepts, then they can only be selfish. Absolutely, yeah. Good. And uh, so, I think that brings me to the references. Oh, yay. <laughs> the references. The abundance of references and there will be blood. And uh, I think the references... For me, anyway, uh, both both I mean the references and themes that are recuperated from uh, two film for me. And, sure, uh, you know I I read somewhere that people were saying that Anderson was watching uh, the Treasure of Sierra Madre on loop when he was making uh, the film. However, I did uh, recall reading a couple of things where he wanted to build practical sets because that's the way Kubrick would have done it. And I figured, well, okay, fine. You know, if there's a little bit of John Huston in there, sure, fine. You know, you, you see everything uh, uh, of how it is. You know, you're, you're in the, the barren land and all that stuff. So it's this typical Western setting, which is kind of cool because the Western does represent the United States to a T. Or, or, sure. or the mythology of the, of the United States, I should yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, yeah. the con- concept of, of america <laughs> yeah exactly and uh, but to me it was the the the, the themes like i said uh, are uh, and even some of the imagery is recuperated from two films from stanley kubrick uh for me anyway and it's going to be 2001 a space odyssey and a clockwork orange and i so i hope people aren't weirded <laughs> out by those two because i think I, I, I already can think of a number of things for 2001 but i'm really interested in the clockwork orange side of things <laughs> Well, I mean, there is a certain amount of chaos involved in what we're seeing, you know, people yeah, going I get, through yeah, I murders and they don't care about it. And, you know, so fair point. 
Um, I think that, well, for me anyway, when I was watching it this time and trying to pick it apart, because like I mentioned on the previous podcast, uh, this, this is the transition for, um, uh, Anderson saying not necessarily goodbye to, um, oh fuck, I forgot his name. Oh, sorry. Altman? (laughs) Not necessarily saying goodbye to Robert Altman, but more of transitioning into his Kubrick phase. Yeah, that's right. And so I thought that There Will Be Blood drew parallels from like 2001 A Clockwork Orange um, that are both, in my opinion, movies about transition, right? If you look at 2001, it's the evolution of man. Therefore, a transition Absolutely. from uncivilized to civilized, right? And then Clockwork Orange, uh, I've talked about this as well a lot, uh, a, a Clockwork Orange uh, being the evolution, you know, a, a, the transition uh, or the evolution of indoctrination, I would say, a, a transition sure. from mythology to science, right? Where you'll, right, you'll right. have a, 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 a couple of stages that Kubrick uses in the movie where uh, uh, there's a rape that's being performed on a stage and then you'll have um, uh, Poseidon that's going to be up there. Uh, and you know it, it embodies this whole Greek myth, but then once Alex goes to the second act of the film, it's religion, and by the end, he's actually being put through these very scientific measures to get him to be cured. You know, so Kubrick is looking right. at these things, and so uh, 2001, like I said, civilized to un, uh, sorry, <laughs> uncivilized to civilized, <laughs> and then Clockwork is going to be the, the 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 evolution of indoctrination. So both movies about big transitions in uh, I'll say a, mic- a macrocosm in 2001, but a very microscopic version, uh, microcosmic version of 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 those transitions in clockwork orange yeah Um, right but what i did pick up on uh when i was watching there will be blood this time was that anderson does include allusions to paul virilio's theory of the integral accident okay which is (laughs) of course (laughs) so obvious for me to know that (laughs) paul virilio is a a french theorist that uh, was born in 1932 so i don't think that he had published his works yet uh i don't know much about him i do know however that he has an interesting theory that i like and it was the one that i'm talking about now the integral accident essentially what virilio says is that every invention that man has had has also Mm. created its exact opposite so he posited that the invention of the locomotive is also the invention of derailment Right. right so the invention of the plane immediately invents the plane crash you know or the torn wing or the flaming thing falling from the sky (laughs) you know planes did not invent flaming things from the sky i'll just say that (laughs) but yeah no i get i get the idea that's that's uh, makes perfect sense so that's it i mean so i think that in there will be blood anderson brings it to life you know and if you look at it it, you have these divisions you know you'll have the train tracks that point to that you'll have the pipeline that point to that that create these two divisions you know i would say that even if we're looking at what you're talking about the uh like like the the idealism gave rise to pragmatism right you know it created right. you know its antithesis or its exact opposite and right, so right, the opening shot i discussed earlier kind of recycles uh, the barren land in the dawn of man sequence in 2001 a space odyssey right yeah. and the one thing that really got to me this time was that the music at the beginning of There Will Be Blood really looks like the introduction of, of 2001 of Space Odyssey. Absolutely right. I, I had that exact same thought when I watched it. <laughs> uh, but I want to clarify for the people that are listening because I'm not talking about the Spack Zarathustra. I'm talking about literally the beginning before the MGM logo. Yeah. Right? And it's that weird, unnerving sound that you're like, what the hell is going on? You know, this is what they used to play for the audience when they were just getting, you know, ready to watch the movie. Yeah. But they included that in the Blu-ray version that I have. And I thought it was great because I was like, fuck, is Johnny Greenwood channeling that? I've seen it in cinemas myself. It is incredible. (laughs) With that that exact segment, it's just great to sit down, fully unnerved. It's one 
wonderful. <laughs> exactly. He just starts cranking it in, and you're like, okay, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> it's really unsettling. And I thought that the, the opening sequence of There Will Be Blood really harkened back to just yeah, trying absolutely. to set that weird unnerved nervedness i'll say uh, uh, of 2001 space odyssey and even like if you look at how 2001 like the themes that it's trying to talk about i think it's very much preoccupied with evolution and progress and development you know whether it's like for i don't know human or science and engineering but it's also preoccupied with isolation okay so if we take what i was talking about uh the idea of the integral accident you know virilio's uh theory in 2001 if i apply it to that in 2001 Every time there's evolution, you know, something positive that happens, something tragic happens soon after, okay? And if we look at the Dawn of Man sequence, the apes discover the monolith, one discovers how to use the bone, you know, so this is the first technological advancement. And he uses it to feed himself at first, you know, so the ability to sustain life. But then a little bit later, an ape becomes the victim of that advancement, therefore the same tool is has the ability to take life, right? That's right. And so it's really weird. A little bit later, if we go into the movie, when man discovers the monolith, yeah. it gives them the ability to create Hal. But then Hal decides to take control of the ship, <laughs> much to Bowman's chagrin. It's just like, oh, fuck. Now we've given birth to this thing and this thing's going to fucking kill us. It's, it's more preoccupied with its own survival. Yes, right. And so I think that Anderson kind of picked up on what was going on in 2001, a space odyssey found out most likely about the integral accident and recuperated and there will be blood in the same way because every time daniel finds something or makes significant progress something happens to him you know yes, right. so, but there's a slight twist to that because to me there will be blood is not only about transitions but it also seems to be discussing the evolution of devolution right okay so if we're talking about the rise and fall story it's that rise to failure essentially right we think we're progressing but we're not necessarily progressing in the right way so if we look at how these these the integral accident happens uh, you know if we take the theory daniel finds silver and he breaks a leg you know so the discovery of silver literally injures him he finds oil for the first time and a man dies so the creation of the derrick also creates death by Derek. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, there you go. You know, and so he finds more oil. Another man dies and H.W. loses his hearing. And he finds a family member in Henry, but he loses H.W. So he creates the replacement, right? Sure. And in the end, Daniel ends up alone as a result, right? So all of his creations ended up being also parts of what destroys him as an individual. Mm. So the more he finds, the more isolated he becomes. And to me, that kind of echoed a little bit of what Bowman discovers about how, you know, the more he becomes isolated. I mean, just look at the imagery in 2001. There's nothing communal about being in space, right? (laughs) He's supposed to be with the crew members. They're four. I mean, they're together. They're exploring space. But then he he kills two in their sleep. He blows another one out into space. And then you've got Bowman who's trying to come back. So... The creation of Hal immediately creates the isolation of man. And it's all it's all in the pursuit of that monolith as well. Even even attempting to grasp at new concepts right. is immediately taking things away from that mission, you know? Yes. And I think that really ties in in, in There Will Be Blood. There's this image of the, the black drill, you know, which kind of connects with the monolith. Oh, yeah. And we get a, we get a couple of uh, slow lingering shots, usually pressing towards yeah, yeah. the drill. And uh, very similar in, in that sort of loom we get every time we see the monolith in 2001. Right. And each time we press closer towards it, 
and one of those incidents happens. You know, we see it once. We look at the drill, and HW's father is killed in the mineshaft as the thing collapses in on him. Right. Then we see it again. The the drill plugging away takes another life later on uh, when the when the first you know the what do you call the what do you call the drill thing? You keep saying it. I can't. Derek. That's the one. Yeah. When you know when the Derek is first sort of without the blessing and and first constructed. It takes another life. And then again, we see it. We see this sort of slow pounding, this tension as this, the, as more oil is drawn to the surface. And it takes, it erupts in flames and takes HW's hearing. And that's, you know, I, I think that connects pretty neatly to the idea of this monolith, you know, as this sort of divisive, you know, connection between evolution and devolution. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, I, there's definitely a, a connecting thread there on Anderson's part. Oh, I think so. I mean, look at just when when they they uh, the first time they find the oil, right? Daniel sticks his hand on the drill bit and then he raises it up and it's drenched in that blackness. You know, it really mimics the the uh, the um, the um, the touching of the monolith of the ape uh, at the beginning of of uh, of um, two thousand one, a space odyssey. And it's kind of cool because I mean, look at how the monolith is discovered in two thousand one, a space odyssey. It, it's literally standing in one spot and then the apes kind of gather around it but it's not necessarily poking out of the earth it's actually kind of surrounded by rock right it's kind of not necessarily yeah, yeah. it's not <clears throat> buried but i mean it's it's kind of engulfed i'll say but when they find sure. it on the moon they had to go digging in the moon to see what the fuck that thing was right so it's like it's the same thing as like what daniel's doing you know if you look at the first shaft that he's in the first rock that he finds is dark black it feels like it's a chip off the monolith right it's not necessarily right, like the right. monolith is crumbled into pieces like they're discovering <laughs> yeah. it again right sure and so yeah i thought that that was kind of cool the way that, that they use the monolith and i think that before i get the to the to the clockwork orange part that I have, which is going to be very short, you know, because to me, it's going to be just talking about camera angles. What I want to look at is just closing out what I wanted to say about 2001 A Space Odyssey is that the the closing uh, sequence of the film of There Will Be Blood is actually kind of a mix of 2001 and A Clockwork Orange. You know, the, right. bo- the bowling alley itself has this one point perspective of Kubrick's, you know, it, first time you see that shot, it's like a it's menacing. It's so terrifying. As you know, it, yeah. it, it hit me anyway. I was looking at it and I was like, "Jesus Christ!" Well, I wasn't expecting that. It's just I like this idea that they're in the gutter. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that that's a really, really good way to look at it. You know, I, I thought that the colors to me were reflective of 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 a clockwork orange, and that, because there's something mm. eerie about the place, you know. And if you look at the Corova <clears> milk <throat> bar, you know, the fact that even Daniel yeah, mentions yeah. that he drinks a milkshake, I was like, oh, "That's kind of cool that he's." kind of i don't that was improvised so i know it wasn't intended but you're absolutely right you know the gutter is is essentially where alex and his droogs are are there they're they're yeah that's where they belong exactly exactly and so to me i like how anderson shot daniel clubbing eli at the end of the film because to me it mimics the shot of the ape thrashing away at the pile of bones in 2001 Mm. once it's learned how to club you know, with a weapon using it like that. And even if you look at how Daniel's walking around, he kind of walks around like one of the apes. He can't really stand still. His back is all arced. He needs a swig of his of his booze to kind of get him up and going. And yes. so I think in that sequence, Anderson is really making that wonderful parallel with 2001, you know. And this is where I was talking about the evolution of man in the... the, the, the uh, the, uh, the Dawn of Man sequence in 2001 where we see the apes actually starting to walk up straight and like use the, the weapon, you know, in order to, to mm. get that 
pool of water, which is kind of funny because we have a couple of pools of oil that are somewhat similar. People are trying to gather around that money throughout There Will Be Blood as well, right? And so I think that because it's the evolution of man in 2001, I think that Anderson is cleverly saying that There Will Be Blood shows it's the beginning of its devolution, right? Right. Going back to this ape form, clubbing away, and the shot is almost exactly the same. You yeah, know, it's from a yeah. different angle. And so I, I thought that that was kind of cool that, that he would use Yeah, that. yeah, this great parallel. That's brilliant. Yeah. Which brings me to Clockwork, which, you know, you were like, really? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. Yeah. Really. <laughs> I'm seeing, I'm seeing uh, that idea, though, of civilized, you know, uncivilized to civilized. That's, again, that's 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 connecting with uh, a Clockwork Orange. That's essentially what they try to do to Alex. Exactly. Very good. So I don't have to, <laughs> I don't have to mention that, which is cool. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and. I mean, like, we were talking about the bowling alley having that, that one-point perspective that he uses, uh, you know, like Kubrick, when mm. it's probably his favorite shot. I mean, there's not one movie goes by without you being able to see something flat-out centered. I mean, he's, I think he started that out with Paths of Glory when in 1957 when you're walking through the trenches with that dolly shot you know it's, it's just it's a tracking shot actually he's following them and everything's dead center all the whole time i mean kubrick really really loved that shot and so sure. anderson recuperates it a couple of times in um in there will be blood and what i notice is that using that one point perspective that kubrick likes so much anderson shoots um daniel mostly in close-up shots and that kind of goes uh to mimic how alex is shot in clockwork orange right it's this character that we're not supposed to be drawn to but he's imposing this character onto us and so i think that in there will be blood anderson is actually forcing daniel onto the audience you know and, and it really really went with when i saw that cross dissolve when we go from that opening shot of the mountains at the beginning that cross dissolve with that ladies and gentlemen you know he gives us about a, yeah, a minute of i was speech. just thinking that there you go exactly it's a really good close-up shot daniel is dead center of the screen but i mean if we're supposed to be attached to this guy anderson puts us in the hole with daniel which means we're going to be getting attached to him because this is the first person we actually see right sure yeah but then after that when the ladies and gentlemen speech starts we're in direct opposition to him you know we're we're watching this guy but we're not seeing anything from his point of view because technically speaking if we wanted to stay with regards to daniel's point of view we would have put the audience you know he would have they would have shown the people that are there the congregation that's gathered to see daniel anderson would have shown them first to say we're on daniel's side and then we would have went to yeah. a close-up shop of daniel but he doesn't do that he immediately goes to acosta's hall of daniel's face there and it reminded me of how alex is imposed you know, onto the audience in at his, the beginning of Clockwork Orange. And yeah, like, in his introduction. You're right. And so it's really odd <clears throat> because if Anderson is putting us against his character and he's framed dead center, how the fuck are we supposed to feel about this guy? And it's kind of cool because instead of actually showing us the audience, he has us sitting in the audience with the rest of the people because mm. he doesn't want to reveal HW right away, right? He's right. not going to show his quote unquote drew his acolyte yeah sure yeah yeah right okay and so what anderson does is he cuts to a medium shot of daniel's left side we're still sitting in the audience but hw is hiding and this is what Mm. creates the dramatic reveal of who hw actually is because immediately after that we go to a medium shot again where daniel is dead center but hw is in the left hand corner of the screen and because that's the way we read as individuals we'll read a screen the same way we read books our eye is immediately drawn to hw and we are supposed to understand 
again, by immediately having our eye drawn to him, is that if we are to believe in Daniel, we're going to actually have to believe in H.W. first. Sure. But that puts us in an uncomfortable position because H.W. is staring out at you. He's twitchy. He's not blinking. And because we hadn't seen him before, it's kind of imposing too. You're like, who the fuck is that creepy kid? (laughs) But at the same time, I mean, because he says that he's a family man and he points to H.W., (coughs) he immediately, once we start listening to Daniel again, that's when that that sequence comes and he says, I'm a family man. And he points to him. So we're immediately sure. thrust back to looking at HW, you know, and we're like, Oh, well, okay. If this kid trusts this guy, then perhaps we're supposed to trust him too. And I thought it was kind of fun because the, the, the other shots that what, what uh, Anderson uses point to the other separations in the film, you know, even like Alex, you know, the way that we're imposed Alex throughout the entire time we're watching clockwork orange we're not supposed to be feeling any sympathy towards this guy but by the end of the movie you actually feel a little bit of his pain which is weird it's one of the creepy things that kubrick does is like you're not supposed Mm -hmm. to like this guy and um the last little thing that made me think of of clockwork orange was uh, daniel's sentence at the end saying i'm finished and to me that echoed 100 percent. i was cured all right (laughs) you're definitely right exactly you know the alex you know saying like i was cured all right and he's there just (laughs) banging away in a snowbank with with a a, a naked chick and you know daniel's just like beating the shit out of eli and he says i'm finished you can only think that someone else like eli is going to come around for for daniel to ruin and he's going to start all over again yeah exactly he's he's nowhere near the end of his line he's he's to continue onwards forever being the miserly fuck he is so i mean <laughs> exactly and so i thought that those two lines really echoed the same thing and you know having that that shot with with the you know dead center at the beginning i was like oh we're in the Corova milk bar again you know they're both drinking you know that like eli's trying to get some form of some form of courage and Daniel's just chugging away at water because he, he's had enough to drink. Yeah, sure. But I also thought that it was a very sour note to end the movie on, which is something I like mm. because I thought that Anderson was in fact saying to the audience that he was finished showing them how they really are. Yeah, yeah. You know? no, I, 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 I think it's the perfect note to have ended this, this story. I don't think there's another way we could have... Anything else would diminish the arc of both characters, yeah. you know. And I mean, that last I'm finished, you know, I I thought that, you know, Anderson was clearly talking to the audience and he was saying to them, this is what I see. He echoes Daniel's sentiment and saying he sees the worst, but he's having a fun time making art about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's that's something I think um, in my, my kind of final uh, side theory on this. Right. I wanted to I want I sort of wanted to talk about um, this idea of family because once again we're back to an Anderson film and what is an Anderson film without family? Absolutely. <laughs> that's his his key theme. It seems to, so far at least. I mean, I you know I'm watching these one by one as we were doing this retrospective. So, but we're here at uh, film five and uh, family once again rears its head. And this time I thought it was interesting because what I saw this time, it was less to do with something we connect to uh, regarding family. It's not about relationships so much as it is about the concept of family. And this time I I saw that what I think he was trying to do was explore this idea of family as seen as natural order. So in that sense, I mean, family is in this this very Freudian idea of patriarchy. Right. What do we gain from having these characters? What kind of family would they uphold? 
you know? Oh, right. And so the one connecting thread I've seen between all, the, between Daniel and Eli and the relationships with their family members is just this one rule. It's that the son must succeed the father. Oh, that's, yeah, that's good. Man. I like that. I would try to, I would try to define that a little. The sons that are explored here, and we look at that for mostly HW and and Eli, mm-hmm. but also Daniel himself, Henry, and oh, right. Paul. All these these children as such to other men. For these characters to succeed, they must outstretch their father's ambitions. They have to... Right, right. Oh, this is good. I like this. It's something inherent in, in nature that to surpass the father is to best him. That's how the line of succession comes from. That's how heritage works. It's a natural evolution. Yeah, exactly. We always gain from our predecessors. That's the point. And here we see that. We can see that explored for each relationship. There's Paul, of course. The true success story of There Will Be Blood. He yep. immediately detaches from his father's way of life. He makes his cut and takes his himself elsewhere. And by simply escaping Little Boston, he's already surpassed what his father's ambition was. Because ultimately, his father's not an ambitious man. He's not a he's not a strong man. He's not a great value man. Both sons dread his position. Right. Paul just does it. You know, if he represents the best of both values, this sort of beacon in which he's both idealistic and pragmatic, he has fully surpassed his father and all other characters. There's also, we can look at Eli, immediately driven by this idea that his father is a weak but spiritual man. He takes the spiritual element and tries to completely best his father in the one thing that his father feels certain that he is good at. Right. There's HW, of course, uh, the son trying to best Daniel. Now, but that's the thing. Daniel's not his real father. Right. HW immediately surpasses his father because his father dies in a... Like, the one image we get of his father, he's smoking in an oil well, <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> he has death written on him. The only thing we ever needed to know about this character is that he was doomed <laughs> you know yeah. that he was not a clever man and that if it wasn't going to be Daniel's hubris crushing him to death then it was certainly going to be his own stupidity that was going to blow him up yeah. so <laughs> and I'll add one thing I mean HW's father his real father baptizes him before he died you know he puts that little oil on his forehead which is oh, really yeah. symbolic you know he has his blessing early on you're right and so he is passing on the torch. And so H.W. goes through his entire life not knowing that he doesn't need to surpass Daniel. That he's always going to be okay. Yeah, he's he's inherently already, he maintains more of the values and the balance that keeps him above Daniel. You're right, you're absolutely right. Yeah. That's another, if we want to look at Daniel, the only thing we know about Daniel, and it's Henry that gives it to us in this conversation that they have, is that his father is an adulterer. Yeah. And there's this idea, if, if the only element that we learn about Daniel is that his father's a an adulterer what's the one thing that daniel doesn't have is sexuality if anything he's this asexual force in the world we never see him with a partner he doesn't have his own child and in fact the one idea in which he discusses with henry this this concept of you know maybe they'll go back to the old farm and there's this ag- ag- aggressive statement against the against the women there that they'll get liquored up and you know they'll take out the girls mm-hmm. it's both a show of unnecessary force Right. And on top of that, he uses it as a lure. He baits Henry's identity using that line. Absolutely. Because it's one thing that they can only relate to is if their childhood, if they both grew up in the same place, they know about the farm. Right. And that's the real element that he's focusing on there, the pragmatic side of it, 
not the relationship side. There's no sexual desire there whatsoever. Right. So here Daniel progresses past this idea of the one thing we know about his father. He detaches himself entirely. He refuses to take part in the same game. But that plays into something I wanted to say about Daniel because here he is our main focus of the story. Right. If these sons are all based on the natural order daniel's overall ambition if he were to have an ambition is to pervert natural order oh, okay we see this in a in a, in a few ways in, a, in far more physical and symbolic sort of representation first of all he's a prospector right <laughs> he literally draws resources from the earth he drains the earth of its own resources okay so we see even the main elements of the world that we live in, of you know regarding nature we can see the earth and the oil, that's one. What about the sea? Well, he plots murder in the sea. He uses it to focus on his anger and his betrayal with Henry. Henry says that he's from one place as well. It's called Fond du Lac. Right, Fond du Lac I don't know what that is. It's a French term, and it's probably a real place. I don't know. But it, it literally translates as bottom of the lake. Wow. And so, <laughs> I didn't know that at all. <laughs> so if you take that literally, if he, if he's plotting murder in water, you know, and he's planning on maybe, you know, you know, this idea of bottom of the lake, he could be actually the bottom of the barrel. These people are all, you know, if, if he's going back to that place and even if Henry's perverting where, where Daniel comes from, that, that, that lake, that place inside. Yeah, that draws him to the water exactly. and, that, and therefore that's, you know, that's the fitting sort of compliment there. That's great. And it's a perversion of baptism as well, right? Oh, good point. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Daniel plots murder in a place where you're supposed to get blessed. <laughs> Lots of, oh, the threads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, and, uh, if we look at the other elements, what about um, the forest, you know, nature itself, the land? Well, he shoots, he hunts quail, you know, he shoots animals, you know, even as a guy, he actually shoots Henry. Uh, oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? It's his natural skulking ground and of course if we want to look at the big one he lights the sky on fire (laughs) oh yeah he's constantly at war with natural elements in this and we could see that his idea is to ensure that he prevents hw from succeeding from surpassing him if there's a real competition that doesn't just focus on eli it's that he refuses to let hw take his place first of all he doesn't let him compete he's not his real son he doesn't even run the risk really you know he'll always have his card that he can say at the end of the day i didn't own you and he does he says it to hw he dismisses him when hw is at his highest point he's succeeded in surpassing him not really you know he is married now he is engaged he is that sexual person he has that relationship that he never had on top of that he is you know, independent, and he has his own money to get away from Daniel, so he's not poor. He is at the top of his game at that point, and he's probably at the best he'll ever do if he gets rid of Daniel, as he does in that scene near the end. Daniel tries to take it away from him. There is a montage when he comes back, that Daniel goes back to his the same ways that he used to, because we are sped through HW's life in no time mm. we see him playing and Daniel is nowhere inside. Daniel is not there. He's not even there at the wedding. He's all but disowned him already. And HW has yeah. been planning his whole life doing what his father possibly would have done. But HW has chosen to have a life as, which is in complete opposition to Daniel. Oh, that's that's perfect. There Will Be Blood is a film that thrives on its interpretation and it's, it's, it's the themes that it sort of hints at here and there throughout. And when it comes to family, we have to have a, uh, this idea that complements the, the bigger, grander war between pragmatism and idealism. And if we're going that way, we need something equally as, as sheer conceptual, you know, you know, 
this this sort of this battle and what he does is instead of focusing on how relationships are affected in like he does in his previous work with you know it's his ultimate ties of how how many ways can a family be torn apart through magnolia for example right or how many ways we can find family as we can see in boogie nights right. here we are given a scenario what is inherent about family in a world where relationships aren't seen as important you know or in a world where we can dismiss them or ignore them if we need to right so if we see that exploration we're seeing a world that basically dies in itself our main protagonists all fall everybody ends in a very bleak dim note and family ultimately remains shattered and fractured right the the concept itself never connects because it can be dismissed so that's a uh my reading on on nature anyway family if your take on family is that i mean because we were talking about it especially like in in in, uh, heart eight and we were talking about boogie nights um, especially and even in Magnolia we, we have sure. these, these uh, concepts of the surrogate family right because essentially what Daniel and Eli are both doing is building surrogate families you know you know the relationship that Daniel has with his workers you know try, or with the townspeople he's trying to build these these fake relationships you know the same way as Eli yeah. is trying to get these people to come to his church you know he's trying to be this this provider this healer of sorts you know but these are all fake relationships but would you call those unnatural relationships because these people are acting as opposed to being sincere i would say that um it kind of plays into the interpretation of the two characters as such because what we see in relationship is what we see from utility on daniel's part uh and the fact that he refuses right. to connect with hw on that side we see his refu- you know his refusal of this this sort of abstract concept of relationship where we see it on eli's side we see more the supernatural. So what we're seeing is this sort of, we are seeing the perversion of these relationships and that uh, they're explored for the gains mm-hmm. of the people who are establishing them. And ultimately it comes to the same conclusive end that you will, you fail in the long run in trying to, to create a life for yourself without that sort of natural relationship developing. All these things can be perverted depending on how we decide to approach them. Even if Paul disowns his family, he's no longer a family man. Daniel, in his eyes, Paul did the right thing of course because that's what that's how daniel chooses he embodies the same ideology that daniel has obviously that you know paul might actually end up being a version of daniel he might just be a a a younger version of daniel right and what he did is he he beat daniel at his own game that's why he admires paul is because he was bested by paul he said i give me the money right you know but what makes us think that paul is actually doing something he says daniel's saying that he daniel is essentially repeating his speech that he says to the people and he's saying it to Eli. Oh, he's got his first Derek, is pulling in $5,000 a week. That's just trash that's coming out of Daniel's mouth because that's exactly what, what what he says to the to the audience at the beginning, to the people that are possibly going to hire him. Right, right? exactly So right. even Paul's relationship with Daniel is a perverted one. Paul is the guy that got out early. He's worse than all of them because he, not only did he fuck Daniel, he fucked his own family in the, in the way as well. But at the same time, we don't know about that. All we know is that he decided, give me 600 bucks. So I mean, I think that your relationship thing is, is absolutely right the only one that hangs in the balance is paul what happens to paul we never know yeah yeah i mean yeah you could say that he becomes that ambiguous ray of light as to how family could you know go either way you know he's the tipping point whether there is any hope for family in this world exactly does he take that six hundred dollars and decides like oh i'm gonna get out early i'm gonna go have my family i'm gonna build something or is daniel telling the truth did he become another daniel and uh, to to me i i'd never thought that paul actually became anything daniel would not have let 
him do that. He would not have let him become a competitor. Why You're do you right. think HW goes down to Mexico? Because he feels that if he stays in the United States, his dad's going to be pissed off. But his dad is equally pissed off that he's in Mexico. He's going against him. Instead of bringing him the, the possible job offer and saying, let's do this father and son, he's saying, I want to go out on my own. The same way Paul did it. I don't think that Paul has an oil well somewhere that's producing anything. Daniel would have never let him do that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a very warped view of family, at least. I think it's, it's, it, as I was saying, it's, it's very much a conceptual idea of family that um, Anderson is taking the opportunity, while things are already bleak, to make things bleaker and see, a, and see a, 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 an inevitable connection with that sort of idea. I think that what, what Anderson might be pointing to, and this would probably tie it up, is that family can be masochistic. Sure, yeah. You know, and so maybe that's why Daniel refuses to have a family, he refuses to be sexual, because in a sense, having some sort of attachment, and we, he, show, he does show a sign of weakness when it comes to HW. He does have affection for that kid, and that's why I don't think that uh, Daniel embodies what, what people were saying in 2007, I remember, I mean, I was talking to the people that I used to work with at HMV saying, he embodies pure evil. I was like, no, he doesn't. I disagree with that. He's human. He does have emotions. He does feel certain things. Maybe his his heart, like his, his ambition is stronger than his emotional attachment to HW, but he does care for that kid. Why else would Anderson have put that flashback in the in the movie to show mm. HW and Daniel playing? I mean, there is some, some form of regret there uh, of not being able to fulfill what he thought family should have been, right? Right, and right. And so I think that Daniel, by saying that he's a bastard from a basket, is essentially flushing out, trying to flush out every single little thing that he had left for HW mm. you know it's just trying not to lose face who do you imagine if Daniel would have fucking started crying at the fact that his <laughs> son was uh, it would have been so out of character it's normal for him to react the way he reacted because if he sees it as competition the first thing it, he, he must do is to react strongly against competition yeah. the same way he would have reacted against Eli I mean yeah reacts, we've seen we've you know? seen him at the bartering so, table you know he puts on his best poker face even uh, Eli was the one who tried to sh dishevel it in the initial bartering for the land from you know his his father yeah, we see yeah. we see yeah we see Daniel sort of sh you know, shed a little of the facade but you're right if he approaches every every competition with that mentality then of course he's going to take his son as a competitor to his his stake in the world with the same poker face that he would to buy land so I think that you know in order to maintain some form of ambition you know and some form of integrity as a person what Anderson is pointing out to is that if there's better to be no ties because having a family is something masochistic it's something that you put yourself through that eventually might actually lead you to pain in a way so i think that's the perfect way to look at it and i mean nature is competition that's what evolution is you know the essential exactly. basis of cells over cells is the structure behind all things that live and breathe so i mean if we really take it that angle you know anderson could be just breaking down family breaking down relationships to the smallest of organisms as he possibly can i think so yeah Maybe we should start closing this out. Any final thoughts on on uh, There Will Be Blood? I mean, that you want to close up? I'll say also when it comes to why this film isn't like a full marks for me. Right. It's because when we deal with the grandiose, and that is what this film is dealing with, we are seeing titans of concepts bashing against each other. Both mm. the people that they, you know, embody, the performances that are brought to them with their huge moments of big swelling showcase acting spots, and the actual themes that we've discussed already. These are This is a big film about I would say big ideas that you know can be broken into simple digestible notions but much like Kubrick's films it lives and dies on its on its on its ability to 
capture the grandiose, you know. Mm. Uh, to me, the thing is, there has to be a connection to me personally at some point. I had, and I'm not saying I had to like uh, Plainview. I, I absolutely didn't have to like Plainview. Much like I didn't have to like Hal, you know. Much like I didn't have to like Alex. Although, I would say again, Clockwork Orange is not my favorite Kubrick film. I need, with the concepts, while I, I enjoyed exploring them, I need to find something that positively thrills me about them beyond just them existing you know beyond the the act of picking them apart i need something that i that plays on my mind that i can go back and say this film continues it will at least have that moment where it taught me something Mm. or if it doesn't have that moment at least it revels in something that i can't wrap my hand around or i can't agree with to any any degree but to me this it was a film that i both could you know i could be way off point might be that there's not a point you know this could be a nihilist film if you really wanted to be that way sure but and it could be this other theories that i'm just i i'm not prepared to speak about or to prepare to wrap my head around maybe so it's got all these open ends i think there's a point where i have to look at what i gained from it and while i the notions that i gathered from it i found interesting but not absorbing and when it comes to the issues i didn't get from you know the ideas that i might not have, i might have missed entirely i don't care enough to try and find them right and that wouldn't be the case if film had truly connected with me on some level. At least he's at least fascinated me on, a, on an extra layer that I usually reserve for this sort of idea of what a great film is. I mean, I could watch 2001 every time I'll come away with another reading of each and every scene because the themes fascinate me and each time they're wholly different from one another. And even if, you know, I'm over-reading it, even if I'm under-reading it, I enjoy getting a part of the act on that case because the ones, even the under-reads, are as fascinating as the over-reads. Here, right. I feel... We have a lot at work trying in very much the same way as 2001 to get our attention, to get us discussing ideas of how the film, you know, impacts us. But it has to go the extra step and giving me something to really admire from the perspective of the characters or the perspective of the notions it has inherited. So that's what I, that's a long way of saying I really like the film. I just wish I loved it. That's fair enough. Although I have to disagree. Sure. This is, this is... This is a movie that I, I I love. I love it a lot. I've seen it. I've seen it a lot. I've watched it many times, and I can understand why people have reservations when it comes to how the film plan plays out. As I was saying earlier in in, in the in the in the recording, uh, my girlfriend doesn't like this. She doesn't. She can't get into it. There's no attachment. There's no emotional sure. payoff. Even in the first couple of minutes, she's like, "Why am I watching this? It it doesn't." It's not attractive, right? Mm. And so I can understand why it fails to capture what I'd call a mainstream audience. But I mean, I think this is what we'd call really a filmmaker's film. Oh, absolutely. Right? When you, you sit down and you want to look at what filmmaking actually is about, you'll, you'll pick up a movie like There Will Be Blood and you'll be like, well, yeah, if I can give you an example of a film, that's exactly what that is. There Will Be Blood is a, is a film. The same way as like you were talking about in terms of Kubrick's films, right? I mean, if I mm. sit down and sit my, my, my daughters down to watch 2001 A Space Odyssey, they'll be like, what's the hell is going on, Dad? I have no idea. Sure. Because these are themes and, 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 and situations that beg you to analyze and interpret and try to get to what the fuck Kubrick wants to talk about. And I think that, you know, just look at what I got out of the opening shot. Yeah. Now, I know that some people are going to be like, what? What the <laughs> fuck is he talking about? Sure. It makes no sense, you know? But, and, and, it, and I think that that's okay. It's, it's perfectly reasonable to have that kind of reaction to what I, think I have if to ev- say if about everybody, that shot. If everybody agreed 
there would be a problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just look at what we got out of the movie. I think that we're, we we actually, we could have recorded for another hour if we wanted to, or maybe oh, two yeah. hours, because there's a bunch of stuff. I mean, there are so many critical approaches that you can take to that, to that, uh, to the film that, you know, it really begs for analysis. And to me, that's why I, I, I find it's rich. If I put this movie on next year, I'll get something new out of it. Yeah. You know, and I mean... I hadn't bothered sitting down to pick it apart because I knew that when I put it on, I could be distracted in a new way. I knew that I could watch it and feel something different. Even though, like you said, now now you've put terms on, on what these individuals represent and idealism and pragmatism. And it's going to be fun for me to sit down and, and rewatch it with that in mind. Yeah, yeah. And just kind of take it in and be like, let's see, you know, I mean, I know Lee's right, you know. Let's see how I can kind of fit it on with with the rest of what's going on. You know, how, how does it, how does this idealism and pragmatism like affect the rest of the individuals in the movie? Sure. You know, I I obviously picked up the crap that I picked up. You know, the 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 the, the framing and all that stuff because that's what I look at. You know, I, that's that's the way my eye works. And so yeah, exactly. These to, those are elements of me, films that speak to you directly. You know, that's exactly that's craft calling you out, and you're fascinated by craft. So this is a film that makes sense for you to love. You know, this is a craft film. It's a living painting. Steven Spielberg has always described Stanley Kubrick's films as paintings, these tableaus that he sets up for you to just admire. I mean, one of the best examples is probably Barry Lyndon. I mean, yeah, sure. Everything in there looks like a fucking painting. And I think that There Will Be Blood is Anderson's first living painting. One of those films that we can pick apart and just admire for all that's there. That tapestry that he's created again, you know. We, we had one in Magnolia. We had a little bit more of a, a character study and, and a very strange approach to filmmaking sure. in, in Punch Drunk Love. But this one is the one that, that kind of has, I'll say, a strange heartbeat. And it's this living organism that is going to continue evolving with how cinema evolves as well. I You, you did say something that actually does interest me it's this idea that this might if this is a living painting if, if we see these works of art as, as something akin to the artists you know evolving as such then i would like to think this is early middle period for anderson and that that's great but the thing about that kind of that outlook is that there's always more to give and there's always better to, to see uh, i feel that the elements here there's a lot there to love there's a lot there to be fascinated in but for me i want something more direct i want something more emblematic of what he's trying to get across that is not just specific in how it goes about its story but also totally and utterly at, at to the to the will of the elements of the film craft that sort of makes it so that's that's a hard ask to for any artist at all but that's the thing i at least see it in anderson i i want it from anderson i just feel we're just a tiny bit short of the line if we're going to be talking I, but I do agree this is going to be a great film that people are going to talk about for a long long time I don't think we're going to at any point dismiss it it's just this is where this is where the line comes from what we want I think it's funny because it puts us at opposition just like it was in the film enough, <laughs> with you with you requesting more it puts you in Eli's camp uh, as an idealist and trying to get something from it but I'm looking at it for yeah, what it is you, yeah, you so have I'm it. the pragmatist <laughs> and so therefore I am Daniel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you drink my fucking milkshake. <laughs> <laughs> I drink your milkshake, Mr. Brady. <laughs> but people they can make they can make what they want of the conversation now, right? Because they might actually Definitely. see me as idealistic from pulling all this shit out of my ass. <laughs> <laughs> we were both pulling shit. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Yeah, that's it. I think that's it for me. I I, I love this picture. I can't recommend it enough. You, I, I hope you guys uh, get as much out of it as we have, you know, because I'm yeah. positive that if Lee decides to sit down and watch this again in a couple of years, you know, he'll probably get something else. And it's the same thing for me. I'm looking forward to showing Absolutely. my kids that they're lucky they're not HW. <laughs> Oh, yeah, but I agree. I agree. There's always something to gain from rewatching this. It's definitely one of those films. So I, I do look forward to that. And I do, again, I recommend it to those who really get fascinated with, with film, you know, as, as, as the art form. This is definitely something that's there, you know. Yeah. It's definitely on in those leagues. Whether it calls to you as strongly as it does to Jason or to me. Or it doesn't call to you at all, or calls to you, you get it, but you don't like it. Like your dad. Yeah, exactly. There are layers to this. You can, you can, everybody can come in with a different angle. And that's what's fascinating about film in general. And what's great about this retrospective, because I got to explore this, this man's work and, uh, you know, slowly, quietly shit on his best films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of cool because, I mean, we don't know where he's, what's happening next. It's going to be interesting. I, I think the next movie is supposed to be coming out is again with Daniel Day-Lewis and it's supposed to be about the fashion industry. Let's see what the fuck Ooh. he does there. It should be very interesting. So, I guess that rounds about up for uh, our, our third episode on Paul Thomas Anderson Retrospective. It's our first, what we call the single shot where we're actually starting to take down the bigger movie uh, Inherent yeah. Vice, I'll see what we have to say about that when I have to revisit it. But it's an excellent <laughs> film as well. I hope you guys had a blast. Uh, my name is Jason. You can find me at film underscore faculty on Twitter. You visit the film faculty website on WordPress. Yeah, I want to give a big shout out to um, uh, David Hart, uh, Ashley Davis again, Mark Putley, uh, the, the wonderful contributors over at film faculty. I want to say a big shout out to also in session film who've been uh, kind of funny with us on the internet a lot lately. <laughs> you know, sharing jabs. I've been sharing snow pictures with JD as well. And Uche yeah. again, uh, Thank you again for for listening and sending feedback and whatnot. This has been great. Chelsea as well. We've had a great time with Chelsea. And I wanted to say a big thank you to Vince Leo. Uh, Vince Leo, yeah. He, he shared I, I, our arrival episode the other day. You know, and he absolutely. was happy that he actually learned how to say Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and Sheila and the, the, the Nerd on Nerd guys were also hugely... Oh, um, definitely, yeah. Really lovely comments. Unbelievable. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Fathom it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> all this, again, thanks to Maddie Neggs for, for uh, retweeting our stuff and also to Courtney yeah, Young exactly. uh, for retweeting our stuff a lot as well. Yeah. Where can they find you, dear sir? Yeah, you can get uh, my reviews at bigpicturereviews.co.uk. We've got a lot of... Uh, we're, we're still taking advantage of our advanced screenings these days. Uh, so uh, I even got to see one myself. I got to see Chirac, the uh, Spike Lee film that right. came out last year. Uh, so, you know, I have a review for that. It'll be up by the time this goes out. And we're just all having a great time as we wrap up to the end of, um, of 2016. We're going to do a couple of right. top 10 kind of stuff, you know, all that kind of fun thing. So definitely, if you're interested in having a little more fun with the reviews, uh, that's that's reserved for the December-January time where we all have a little fun looking back on the year that's passed. Right. Uh, on top of that, you can get to me on on Twitter at Big Pick Reviews and uh, say hi. Tell me that you're outraged that I held any sort of uh, <laughs> disregard for There Will Be Blood. And yeah, call me out. Do it. I dare you. <laughs> Come at me. <laughs> so yeah, next episode uh, is going to be on The Master, which is to me Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, masterpiece. Uh, and I know that's debatable. People are going to be be like, really? What? I hated that fucking movie. Well, that's okay. You, I'm, you guys. I'm really interested to see where I 
I, I fall on this one. I, I rent to see it two days in a row. Good, that's no expectation. <laughs> no, but I mean, like I said, to me, it, it just spoke to me. I love it. No, that's it. That's it for us for this week. Thank you again for listening to episode 15 on There Will Be Blood. We hope that you enjoyed uh, or still enjoying the retrospective. We have two episodes out already. Go listen to those. There's no logical continuation, but it does help us out. Yeah. Leave us a little bit of the reviews on iTunes. That would help us out a great deal. And don't forget to comment on the tracks on SoundCloud. That would really give us a hand too. And I guess that's about it for me. All right. So see you next week. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.